one thing that our churches needs as much, if not more than anything else, is overwhelming joy. It's a reminder that we should be people of joy. There are a lot of people out there that, unfortunately, Christians included, who haven't figured this out. Some folks seem to wear their emotions on their sleeves, are looking for reasons to get hurt or offended, described by anything but joy. Some of us, we've all fallen into this category. We let the pressures of life just get to be overwhelming to the point to where that's all we can feel, the stress, the pressures of everyday life, to where joy is, if we ever had it, a distant memory. And it's hard to imagine what joy would be like. There's just too much in life. Whether it's one or the other, whatever the reason, those things should not keep us from experiencing joy that God makes available to us. When we allow those pressures, when we allow those things to build up, when we allow it to choke out our joy, joy stealers, which we'll talk about, creep into our lives. We have a tendency to develop the what-if syndrome, and Charles Swindoll talks about this. He writes, you say you would enjoy life if only you had more money, if only you had more talent, or were more beautiful, if only you could find a more fulfilling job. I challenge those excuses, he says, just as more money never made anyone generous and more talent never made anyone grateful, more of anything will never make anyone joyful. And the reason that's the case is because joy is not a warm and fuzzy feeling based on circumstances, emotions, or possessions. That is not joy. This series that we're starting is not a name-it-claim-it health and wealth series. Those philosophies are based on a gross misunderstanding of joy. If you have what you want, you'll be joyful. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that. What you do find is that joy is something that transcends circumstances and emotions. Rick Warren gives a great definition of joy. I heard him give this definition of joy after he lost his son to suicide. Here's what he says. He says, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all of the details of my life. There's great assurance when you know that. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right because God is in control. And the determined, don't miss this part, the determined choice that I'm going to praise God in any and every situation. That produces joy. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not an emotion. I want to see if I can illustrate that for you. Water represents experiences. We're talking about joy is not an experience. It's not the result of an experience. It's not the result of an emotion. And even Charles Swindoll went down the list of different things. If I had this new job, if I had this new whatever, I would be happy. Some people believe that. Here's what happens When we have these experiences, yes, they produce happiness. Let's say you get a new job. That's a shot in the arm. That's an experience of happiness. That's going to be our lives. So now this glass represents our lives. So now we do have something that makes us happy for a period of time. Let's say you get a new house or a new car. Again, a great thing. It makes you happy. Eventually, though, that newness is going to wear off. You're happy, but that emotion is great until something comes along to make you sad. Let's say you get a promotion at work, and hey, that's great. You're happy for a little while. It makes you happy until all the responsibilities that come with that promotion set in. Emotion is good. 
let's say you just have a really great vacation that you're looking forward to. You get to go on that vacation. You experience that vacation, and it's fantastic. It's maybe the best vacation you've ever had, an experience of happiness, and it is happy. Let's say your kid actually does, your child actually does what you tell them to do. They obey you. They clean their room. You get home from work. Their room is clean and tidy. They give you the report card, it's all A's, and man, that makes you feel good. Well, you see where I'm going with this. I mean, the happiness, it comes, and there are a lot of experiences of happiness, but it's going to take a long time to fill up that jar with just emotions. And as we've already established, those emotions only last for a certain amount of time. Marbles, on the other hand, these marbles represent the Holy Spirit. God's presence in our lives. And he says that when the Holy Spirit comes in, we have access to a lot of things, his power, his strength for living, but we also have access to joy. Now we have to make a choice to receive that joy, but once the Holy Spirit comes in, we can receive joy. The Holy Spirit immediately fills us up and we immediately have access to joy. Now think about this for a moment. If I leave this jar, this glass here, For a long time, let's say it's summertime, we turn the air off, it gets to be 100 degrees in here every day. What's eventually going to happen to the water in that glass? It's going to evaporate. Eventually, it's going to be gone. It's going to take a while, but eventually, it's going to be gone. Some emotions last that quick. Some of them last a long time, but eventually, they will fade away. But even when that water is gone, what's still going to be left in this glass? That's joy. Joy is not dependent upon emotion, it's not dependent upon events, it's not dependent upon circumstances, it's dependent upon God, salvation, His presence in my life, and it is eternal because God is eternal. But we have to access it. Joy is an emotion that supersedes. Happiness is temporary and based on circumstances, while joy is eternal and it's based on Christ because He is constant, He is faithful. This series that we're starting, we're calling it Joy Ride, experiencing joy along the ride of life because life is a ride, isn't it? It has ups and downs, twists and turns, all different types of experiences. The point is that you can have joy in the midst of all of it. God's children should be people of joy. Did you know that the word joy or rejoice, some form of that is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible? We're in the book of Philippians in this series, and in Philippians alone, Paul mentions the word for joy, rejoice, are, are to have some form of having joy 16 different times. It is the theme of the book. It is, he's challenging the Philippians to be a people of joy because that's what they were known of, they were known for. Jesus himself said this in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, joy, fulfillment. Philippians 3, 1, we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. In Psalm, or in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, we're told to be joyful always, not based on whatever circumstance, but always. In Psalm 16.11, we read, in your presence is abundant joy, and your right hand are eternal pleasures. The reality is, we as believers should be the most joyful people in all of the world, not because of our circumstances, not because of who we are, but because of what we've received in Christ. We receive grace from above and peace within. Grace is something that's given to me that is above, above myself, beyond myself, that, that I don't deserve. Peace is something that happens within me because of the presence of Christ. And again, not something I deserve, but it's not based on my circumstances. It is what he does in me. 
Grace and peace, we are saved by Jesus' death and resurrection. We have eternity to look forward to, all the reason in the world to be joyful. But Jesus says that while we do have that to look forward to, we also have the opportunity to experience heaven on earth in the form of joy. We can have joy while we're still here, but we have to choose to receive that joy. It is something that we have to to choose uh, it's like agape love. We have to choose to love. We have to choose to receive joy. But I'm thankful that we have that choice. And the only reason we have that choice is because of salvation. The reality is, you've seen this, no salvation, you can't have joy. Joy is not available if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. But if you know salvation, you can know joy. But don't think it's automatic. It's not. Joy is something that I choose. John Piper says we have to fight for joy. And I believe that because everything in the world is going to try to choke that out. All those joy stealers, which we'll talk about in a few moments, are going to come in and try to steal joy away from you. My prayer is that this series will accomplish two things. Number one, I want you, all of us here, to experience true joy in life. I really do. I want you to experience true joy. And number two, I want us to spread that joy to other people. I want us to be known as people of joy. And our perfect example of this in the book of Philippians, Paul, we see Paul, just a little bit of background. He's on his second missionary journey with Silas. And then later on, they meet up with Timothy. They attempt to retrace the steps of the first missionary journey. They find out quickly. They get derailed. They end up in Philippi. As they go into city, they see into the city, they see a group of Gentile women praying. Those women become the first converts. They're the first people in the city of Philippi to accept Christ. One of them is named Lydia. She's an important figure. And the Philippian church. Well, after they enter the city, you remember the story in Acts. This is Acts 16 where they meet Lydia. You remember the story shortly thereafter. Paul and Silas are thrown in prison for exercising a demon demon from a demon-possessed girl. The guys who are making money off her are not too happy about it. They're thrown in prison. They are jailed. They lead the jailer. The earthquake takes place. They don't escape. They lead the jailer to the Lord. Well, all of this only fuels the revival that's going on in Philippi. They see Paul go through all of this, and, he, and, and then the jailer becomes a believer, joins the church, and all of his family gets saved. More people are getting saved, and this just fuels that revival. Well, years later, Paul's in jail again. His bond with the Philippian church through that experience was incredible. It is arguably his favorite church. He has a relationship with them that he has with no other church. While he's in prison, the Philippians support him financially. They send him money. A man, a church member by the name of Epaphroditus, takes him money. He gets sick while he's there. He almost dies, but when he recovers... Paul sends a letter back with Epaphroditus to the church at Philippi because he's worried about them. He's worried that him being in prison is going to cause they, who are known for being a people of joy, it's going to cause them to lose their joy. And he sends them this letter to encourage them to be joyful. He wants them to grow in their faith. He wants them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And he knows they're not going to be able to do that if they are worried about him. So he sends this letter and encourages them to maintain joy. And it's the same message to us, to maintain joy. We are called by God to accept joy, but to choose to be joyful, just as Paul is telling the Philippians. Our study of this letter is going to help us uncover this secret of living a joy-filled life. We're going to look in Philippians chapter 1 this morning, beginning in verse 3. Discover how to find true joy in life. 
I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with you, for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work will complete it, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all in my, my partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ. He has deep affection for them. This is a close relationship. Verse 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment, that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So how do we find true joy in life? This morning, we're going to look at four ways. Paul gives us four ways. Number one, we need to focus on positive memories. Again, that's not all. I mean, circumstances, emotions, events change. But one of the ways that we can have joy in the present is to focus on positive memories, especially as they involve God's people that he's placed in our lives. And that can be a source of joy, as it was for Paul. It's easy, very easy, to only focus on what's wrong in your life. I mean, we all have the tendency to do that, the if-only syndrome. If only I had this, if only I had this, that, if only that hadn't happened or had happened. But what we're called, what we should do is focus on the blessings that God has given us, the good things in life, because we all have blessings. We all have hardships, some more than others, but we all have blessings as well. And you can almost see Paul in this jail cell thinking about Lydia, thinking about that jailer, thinking about all those people who had come to the Lord who were sending him money, who were supporting him while he was in prison, who had stuck with him through the good times and the bad. You can see him thinking about all of these memories of all these people and then writing, I thank God for all of you. He was thankful. For the people that God had placed in his life. And he focused on those positive blessings that God had given him through those people. One of the things that amazes me about Paul, when you look at Paul, very rarely, if ever, do you see Paul thanking God for things. But you do see him thanking God for people. Even people that he had disagreements with. I mean, look at the end of his life. He's already made reconciliation. John Mark... I mean, Barnabas, he and Barnabas split ways, but they never, they never held grudges against each other. I mean, even the people that had caused him difficulty, he still thanked God for those people because they were working together on the same mission. They were accomplishing the same purpose. Paul was a people person first and foremost, and regardless of what disagreements he had, as long as they were believers on the same mission, he thanked God for those people. And he took joy from those relationships, and you and I can do the same. He prayed for them with joy and thanksgiving. But that's not all. Look at verse 4. Always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer. Always, all, every. This is intense emotion. When he thought of them, he prayed for them. And it wasn't just the people that were in his Sunday school class. It wasn't just the people that he sat next to or he knew the most. All of them. Whoever popped into his head, he prayed for them. He prayed for all of the Philippians. Whenever he had a chance, whenever he thought of them, in every occasion, he said. Something very important here happens in verse 4. It's the theme that starts the whole theme for the whole book of Philippians, this theme of joy. It's repeated over and over again 
15 other times in the book, it reaches its climax in ver- chapter four, verse 4 of chapter 4 where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We, we know that verse. We sing a song about that verse. That is the theme of this book. The first mention of joy here, though, in chapter 1 is significant because the Macedonian churches were known for joy. and The Philippian church was, was one of those that was known the most for joy. Even in the midst of persecution, Paul even challenged the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2 with their example. He says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles or persecuted and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. Paul writes to the Philippians, these Macedonian churches known for joy, Philippian church especially, he's afraid they're going to lose their joy. He's afraid they're losing sight, that they're worried about him, and he's writing them to say, don't worry about me. Be, continue to be people of joy. Continue to fulfill your mission. This is the reason for the theme of joy in the book of Philippians. Something else special about this is that Paul himself, he's in prison. He's possibly facing death. He had every reason not to be joyful, yet he himself chooses to be joy, to, to be joyful, which shows us that joy, again, it's not, it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not based on emotion. Joy is something that we choose, that we have to choose. It's available. Joy comes from God, but we have to choose to receive joy. Paul could have chosen to be sad, but he chose instead to be joy, joyful. And if you look at all of the biblical writers, that theme repeats itself. Joy is something that we have to choose. And it's also something that can be, because it's a choice, it's something that can be commanded. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the, in the Lord. And a few verses later in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Chapter 4, verse 4, again I say rejoice. I just read that. He's not commanding them to be happy. He's commanding them to be joyful. Joy is a choice. What an example he sets for us. Remember the positive things in life. Remember the blessings of God. Remember the people that God has put in your life. Especially those, those memories that surround those people. And you can have joy, one source of joy. If we're going to have true joy, we also need to have a firm confidence in God, though. I mean, yes, positive memories, blessings of God, but joy truly comes from our confidence in God. It's a settled assurance that God is in control. It's a quiet confidence. Remember our definition, a quiet confidence that ultimately everything's going to be okay because God has us in his hands. It's confidence in him. And Paul's confidence in God was a settled fact. Look at verse 6, chapter 1. I'm sure he's confident of this. The idea here is that he's been persuaded. He's experienced God and he's been persuaded. And, And as a result, he now has confidence. Confidence that comes from knowing and believing, experiencing God's faithfulness, believing in God's promises. He's confident that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Now, If you look at those words, started, began, and completed, started and completed, they're like the bookends of life, life in Christ. That Jesus started, when you were saved, he began a work in you. And regardless of what happens in your life, if you are faithful, you can be sure that God will complete that work in you. 
And he's saying, listen, I know you're experiencing persecution. I know you're worried about me, but, but be confident. Regardless of what happens in your life, the same God that started the work in you when he saved you, he's going to complete it when you return, when you go home to be with Christ. He who began the work will complete it, the beginning and the end. There's confidence in that. That word completion, it literally means fully complete. We can rest in the knowledge that what God intends to do, he will do, and he will complete fully the work in us, making us completely like his son. So again, regardless of the circumstances, even in the midst of persecution, the Philippian church, you and I, we can have joy. If for no other reason, we can know, we can be confident that God will finish what he started in our lives. But we have to be aware of things in life that can come along to try to steal that joy. We call these joy stealers. And there are three main joy stealers that I want to show you this morning. And you, you're aware of them, but we're going we're gonna to be reminded of them this morning. Three main joy stealers that I see in life. One is worry, one is stress, and one is fear. Three things that will steal your joy quicker than anything else. Now worry, they're all different. Worry is anxiety over something that may or may not happen. How many warriors do we have here? I'm raising my hand not to get you to. I'm raising my hand because I too am a warrior. We'll form a club. We'll meet on Thursdays. <laughs> worry is silly, and I know it's silly. I worry about things that, that most of which I think the statistic is 80% of what you worry about never even happens. That's worry. What if this happens? What if it doesn't happen? It's anxiety over something that may or may not happen. Stress is an intense strain. It's more acute than worry. Stress is, is strain over a situation that you cannot control, something that's out of your control, something that's happening that you know is happening and you, you can't control it. Well, the reality is control is an illusion anyway. I mean, if God is in control, then I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm controlling it. If I, my life is in his hands, but still stress, stress is real and stress can steal your joy. And then there's fear. Fear is an emotion anxiety, strain, whatever you want to call it. It is a response to something in your life that threatens your health, that threatens your well-being, that's evil, that's dangerous, or painful. That's fear. Worry, stress, and fear, those are the joy killers, joy stealers. And if we allow them, they will steal our joy. But again, the remedy for that is confidence. The only remedy for joy stealers is confidence in God. Verse 6 again, I'm confident, sure of this. That he who started a good work and you will carry it on to the day of completion. Confidence comes from knowing God and being confident in his ability to carry you through any and every circumstance and complete the work that he started in you. In Ephesians 1, 6 and 7, Paul prays for people often. He prays that they would grow in their faith so their confidence would increase. In Ephesians, he says, I always remember in you in my prayers, asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father, to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you will know him better. The more you know him, the more your confidence grows. Philippians 1.9, he prays for the Philippians, this is my prayer, that your love will grow more and more, that you will have knowledge and understanding with your love. Why? Because it develops confidence. The more you know God, the more your confidence grows in him. Colossians 1, 9 and 10, so we have not stopped praying for you, since we first heard about you, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
Then the way you will live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit, all the while as you grow and learn to know God better and better. Here's the thing. We have to know God, and we have to grow in Him to have real, complete, total confidence in Him. A superficial knowledge of God will produce a superficial confidence in God. It will be shallow. It will be weak. But if I grow deep in my faith, say it this way, the more I know God, the more my confidence grows in God. The more I know him, the more intimate my relationship, the more knowledge I have of him, the more I see him come through with his promises, I experience his faithfulness, the more I experience him in my life, the more my confidence in him grows. You have to have knowledge of God, confidence in him. There was an article called, Why Are So Many Christians Unhappy? Jim Johnson writes this article and he talks about some people are born with a tendency to be depressed chemical imbalances, things of that nature, and that's very real and needs to be treated, and he doesn't discount that. He talks about that, but he also talks about several Christians who are going through life, and because of circumstances, their joy is is being stolen. He talks about moms who are exhausted. Some of you moms here today are exhausted. You're homeschooling your kids, or you're racing to get them back and forth to school and all their other activities, and you get to the end of the day, and you think, hey, there should be more joy in parenting than this. You're exhausted. So that's a real issue. He talks about some people who are grieving or suffering, and some of you may be grieving right now. You've lost a loved one, or you're suffering from some sort of illness, and that that can choke out your joy if you allow it to. It certainly can steal your joy. It talks about how Satan's constantly attacking us, and that can steal our joy. We're under attack. If we're serving the Lord, we're going to be under attack. But he said the most miserable Christians he's ever met, and I will say the most miserable Christians I've ever met, are those Christians who have a foot in both worlds. Who say they trust Christ, who claim his name on Sunday, but then the rest of the week they live like the rest of the world. Folks, that's exhausting. And that's why so many Christians are not exhibiting joy in their life. Their allegiances, their loyalties are divided. You can't serve God in wealth, the scripture tells us. You can't be totally devoted to Christ and and then also devoted to the world. You have to say yes to God and no to the world completely to have total knowledge of him that grows and grows more intimate that results in confidence. So many people don't have joy because they don't know Jesus. Christians who are unhappy, half-hearted Christians are not happy Christians. They don't have joy. I'm confident in what Paul tells us. I'm confident that God will finish the work that he started in me and you. I'm confident in the same God who brought joy to Paul in prison and brought joy to the Philippians, to the Macedonian churches in the midst of persecution. I'm confident that he can bring us that same joy that will supersede our circumstances, whatever's going on in our culture, whatever seems to be happening, or whatever decisions are made in the Supreme Court or in Washington that that contradict the Word of God. I'm still confident in God because God is still on His throne, and He is always faithful, and He will carry us through and complete the work that He began. 
in us. Confidence brings joy. And when we begin to have confidence in God, we begin to experience joy. Here's the way to look at it. Confidence brings joy when we focus our attention on the things for which we're thankful. We've talked about that. Focus on what you have to be. Don't focus on the negative. I mean, you have to deal with that. Focus on reasons to be thankful. Confidence brings joy when we let God be God. And I'm not saying let go and let God. We've talked about that. But I'm saying submitting to the Lord. His lordship in my life, letting him have his way in my life, not trying to run my own life. And confidence brings joy when we keep our love within its proper limits. Complete and total devotion to God, not a foot in both worlds. If you want confidence in God, if you want joy, you have to have confidence in God that's characterized by thankfulness and and submission and devotion to the Lord. Know God and let your confidence in him build. Next, if you're going to have true joy in life, Love the people around you. I mean, God's brought us all here for a reason. You should love your family, yes. Be thankful for your family. But we need to love each other. And we need to not take that love for granted. Look at verse 7. It is right, Paul says. And when he says it is right, he's not saying, hey, this is a good idea. He's saying this is morally and spiritually right. It's not only expected of you, it is required. It is the right thing to do. It is required of you. It is required for me, he says, to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This term that Paul uses for affection, it's one of my favorite biblical terms because it's actually the word used for bowels, all right? That's a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? But in biblical times... It was thought that the deepest emotions of the human body were in the intestines and the stomach and the liver, even the lungs. I mean, I don't know why, but that's what they thought. And so he's using this word. He's saying that I have a deep, sincere, intense affection for you, an affection that, that, that supersedes just a surface friendship, just, just a, a get-to-know-you type of thing. He's saying that you are, I carry you with me in the deepest part of who I am. I'm opening myself up to you. In, in an intimate way, in, in a revealing way, he's willing to, to share intimacy with these people. He's talking about his affection for them. And this was because of the incredible relationship that he had built with them through all of the experiences. Building the church, but then supporting him while he was in prison, continuing. He had a relationship with this church that he didn't have with others. He loved all the churches that he ministered to, but this one was special, and it's evident in this letter. A few years ago, contractors were removing old chalkboards from Emerson High School in Oklahoma. They were changing out the chalkboards, putting up whiteboards. When they took down the old chalkboards, they realized that buried underneath those old chalkboards were even old chalk, older chalkboards. There were some calendars on them, so they realized that they were from 1917 and they hadn't been erased. There were still drawings on those chalkboards. These drawings that these teachers, students had drawn, and they were really incredibly well done. You didn't have slides or chalkboards or anything like that back in the day, so they had to be good at penmanship and drawing, and they would write multiplication tables, they would write stories about the pilgrims. All these things are, are on display on these old chalkboards, and they, pre- they preserved them because there was history right in front of them. But on one of the chalkboards, there was a statement that stuck out to me that I noticed, and I want to read that statement for you. It was written probably by a teacher. 
it, when it was probably, they would say the Pledge of Allegiance, they would probably have prayer, and they would say this together every single day as they started school. I give my head, my heart, and my life to my God in one nation, indivisible with justice for all. Now think about that, the order there. They knew something that we all need to understand. You can never have unity in your school. You can never have unity in a country. You can never have unity in a church. You can never have unity in your family until first you've given your head, your heart, everything that you are, everything that you have to God. First to the Lord, then that brings unity in your relationships. And that's what Paul experienced with the Philippians. That's what we can experience with one another. This isn't just a surface relationship. Gordon Fee says it's a three-way bind between the Philippians, Paul, and Christ. And Christ is the center. And in this three-way bind, they, they, they are illustrating for all of us the intimacy that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. They're illustrating the relationship of the Trinity. And we can have that same relationship if Christ is in the center. If first we've given ourselves to him and he is in the center of our lives, then we can have intimacy with each other. 1 John 1, 3, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This word fellowship here, the word that's used, it means fellowship, partnering, sharing with somebody. And, and, and this is the type of relationship Paul had. There are characteristics that we see in this relationship really quickly. One is a fellowship of grace. They had a fellowship of grace. Verse 7, you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel, he says. We're partners in this. We're in this together. There's a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, any fellowship in the Spirit... If any affection and mercy, they had a fellowship because of the Holy Spirit. We have that same fellowship. There's fellowship in Christ's sufferings. We see this in verse 10 of chapter 3. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then finally, there was a costly fellowship because one of the things that endeared Paul to the Philippians is that they didn't have much, but they sent him money. They sent him things that he needed while he was in prison. They, they sacrificed for his benefit. Philippians 4, 14 and 15. Still you did well by sharing with me in my hardship, he says. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. They had been doing this. This was a pattern. They had supported him in his ministry. Paul is thankful for these folks because they are bound together. They are bound together in this, this, this three-way relationship. They, Paul, and, the, and Jesus Christ at the center, and they are bound together with this one mission of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles to anybody who would believe, anybody that would listen. They were unified in purpose of spreading the gospel. They had given in such a way that it encouraged Paul later in 2 Corinthians 8 to say out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up with rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this servant of the service of the saints. And they did not do it as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, again, first to God, and then in us keeping with God's will. There's an article, John Powell talks about why we're afraid to get close to people. And he talks about different levels of communication, and they range from the most superficial to where 
you just basically exchange niceties. They go beyond that to you actually get to know something about somebody. Facts is what that's called, but you don't really get to know who they are, but you know what they like and don't like. And then it goes to another level of where you actually express feelings to other people. It says that only about 10% of relationships gets to that level, to where you're actually expressing feelings to one another. And then the, the, the most intimate level is where you, you know and share intimate details about one another. This is the idea that, uh, of a relationship, the intimacy between husband and wife, but also deep, intimate friendships. I think of David and Jonathan, the relationship they had, the type of relationship that Paul had with the Philippians was this type of relationship where they shared intimate details. They shared each other's burdens. They helped one another. They were close. And this level one type of deep, intimate relationship, this is the type of fellowship that we should seek to have with one another as God's people, as the body of Christ. There's great joy in that. There's comfort in that. Mixed with confidence in God and the blessings of God. It produces a type of, uh, of, of relationship where we carry one another's burdens and we actually pray for one another. We don't just say, hey, I'll pray for you. We pray specifically and, and often, just as Paul often prayed for these people, encouraging one another, which is exactly where Paul's headed next. He reminds us that if we're going to have true joy in life, we have to encourage the people that we love. We need to encourage one another. Encouragement is a ministry that's needed in the church. Now more than ever, as we face things that we've never faced before. Verse 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge, in knowledge, every and every kind of discernment. This is agape love. It's love that's, I choose to love you whether I like you or not, whether I feel like it or not. It's committed love. It's not dependent on how I feel. It's not emotional. It's not based on physical attraction. It is real commitment to love one another, to be committed to each other. Love, this is the love that they had been showing for Paul. Again, this was a pattern and the same type of love he had for them. Paul just wanted it to grow. He didn't want them to lose sight of the joy that they had. He didn't want them to stop loving him and others the way they had been. It it wasn't based on feeling. It was a conscious, intentional choice. It's sacrificial as well. I mean, they were willing to give. He said they were poor, yet they were willing to give when he needed it, when he he or anybody needed it. They showed their love through their generosity. It showed discernment. It was love that led to discernment because it was knowledge. Remember, they grew in their knowledge and discernment. They loved the Lord. They grew in their knowledge of the Lord. It was love that was shown the appreciation of real knowledge of God's truth that produces holy living. And Paul wants their lives to keep growing, verse 10, so that you can approve the things that are superior and be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. You see the progression. There's love that produces relationship, that produces intimacy. It's committed love, not emotional love. It produces knowledge, growing in the grace and knowledge of God. It produces discernment that results in holy living, that's shown in serving other people, which makes relationships even stronger. There's a progression, and it keeps going. Pure, it's superior, it's excellent. Paul says, I want you to remain pure and blameless in the day of Christ, separating what's false from what is pure. There's also the idea of oneness and unity that he's talking about here, a blameless life. There's nothing that, that my brothers and sisters can accuse me of because I'm living a holy and pure life, not perfect, but overall I'm consistent and pure and holy, blameless among my brothers and sisters. And then verse 11, he says he wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes 
through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Fruit of righteousness, good works. Again, love produces spiritual excellence, produces knowledge, it produces discernment, which produces good works, which then produces fruit, which is seen in serving others, loving others, among other things, but then ultimately gives glory to God. And that's the goal. All of this comes through Christ, abiding in him. In John 15, verse 4, Jesus said, Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains in me on the vine, or the branch remains on the vine, so neither you can bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And all of this, it's in Christ and it is for his glory. He first loved us. We love him in return. We're committed. We grow in our grace and knowledge of him. We grow in love that's shown in so many different ways, shown towards other people. It's shown in growing in my faith and good works and service and righteous living, integrity. And that draws more people into a relationship. God uses that to draw people to himself. That's the prayer that he prays for them. That's what he wants for them. That's what I want for us is to grow in our love, to grow in joy that produces that type of love so that we can be a reflection of Christ to a lost world and so that we can be a place where real relationships form, where real bonds form, and we continue to work together for God's glory. Remembering the past, confidence in God, loving, encouraging people around you. These are the keys to living a joy-filled life. Now, unfortunately, we'll kind of stop where we started. There are a lot of people that are like this hose. There are a lot of people who, depending on what happens in life, they're bent, they're shaped, depending on their circumstances. And what will happen in life, if you're not careful, is that ultimately the pressures of life, the stresses of life will tie you in knots, which is exactly what you can do with this hose. I mean, there's nothing to keep you from getting all tied into knots. There's no firm foundation. There's no confidence. There's no strength because you're depending on yourself, your own strength, and you're depending on your circumstances and your happiness or sadness to determine whether or not you're joyful. Well, what God promises us is like this pole. We'll say this represents the presence of God in our lives, faith in God. And when we have faith in our lives... What we find out is that suddenly no longer are we dependent on circumstances or we toss around, suddenly we have strength. And it would take a lot for me to bend this, and I'm not going to because it belongs to the church, but (laughs) it would take a lot of strength to now bend this hose. Suddenly it's not tossed around, it's not conformed by me or anything else. There's something greater, stronger inside it that keeps it from being tied in knots. If you want joy... You can't depend on circumstances. Those come and go. You can't even really completely depend on the people around you because people are eventually going to let you down. We should strive to serve one another, love each other. You have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy is the confidence that everything's going to be okay. It is trust that Jesus Christ is in control of my life, and that produces that confidence that everything is going to be okay. It is the determination that I'm going to trust the Lord, I'm going to have faith in Him, and I'm going to praise Him in any and every situation. And with His presence in our lives, it doesn't matter what comes, we can stay secure and we can have joy that transcends all circumstances and peace that passes all human 
comprehension. That's what Paul wanted for the Philippians, and that's what I want for you and me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us, giving us the ability to trust in you, to have faith in you. Lord, we would never choose you on our own, but you draw us into a relationship with you. And because of that relationship, we now have your Holy Spirit and we have access to joy that is indescribable. And we thank you that you give us access to that, but we know we have to choose it. Well, we know we can't choose it without you. And there may be somebody here today who doesn't have a relationship with you, God, through your son, Jesus Christ, who's never accepted salvation that you only you can offer. And I pray that if that describes somebody here today, that they would come during this time of commitment and allow me to share with him how to make that decision. For the rest of us, we know that, that, that while we can be saved and, and know we're saved, we, have to, we also know we have to choose to receive the joy that you offer. That comes through faithfulness, putting our faith in you and you alone, not in you and something else, not a foot in both worlds, but total and complete devotion to you, submitting completely to you and your will for our lives. And if that describes someone here today, that, they, that their devotion is divided, their loyalties are divided, Lord, I pray that today would be a day of recommitment, rededication to you. There may be other decisions you're leading us to make. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that we would just allow you to speak to our hearts and that we would respond obediently to whatever it is that you call us to do. Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to respond to your word, and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our invitation?